Well, good morning, everybody. Last week, I got the chance to go be a part of OKids. It was my first time doing that, and I was really impressed with how Maggie and the other volunteers do it. It's a well-oiled machine, and they really preach the gospel there, and I was impressed with the kids, too, um, at how much they know. I'm actually teaching in there next week, and a couple days ago, Maggie, who's going to be out of town, texted me and said, by the way, congregational meeting is next week, so... Brush up your tap dancing and juggling skills. So I'm going to have to come up with a lot of filler for next week. Hopefully it won't be just filler, but you know what I'm saying. Um, well, I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll dive into this thing, okay? God, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to come together as your people this morning and hear your word and respond in worship. Lord, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart. For those of us who are Christ followers, I pray that you would remind us of the riches that we have in the gospel. And for those of us who are here this morning who don't know you as Lord, we pray for revelation of who you are to them, that they would see your goodness and your steadfast love and want to be a citizen of your kingdom and a member of your family. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this won't be a shock to most of you, but since I was a little kid, I've been kind of obsessed with music. And I remember when I was in kindergarten, my mom got a copy of Michael Jackson's Thriller. Um, And it was vinyl, but I'm old, and it was the early 80s, so it's not that we were hipsters collecting vinyl. It was just, that's how you listen to music then. So every day when I'd come home from kindergarten, I would kind of open the record up, and it has that, I don't know if any of you have seen the inside of Thriller, but Michael Jackson's kind of laying like that with a baby tiger on him. I don't know why, but I would open it up, and I would just sit like that, and I would listen to the whole record all the way through, and When I wasn't able to listen to the record, I found myself singing the songs and humming, and I started trying to figure out how I could emulate the sounds of the different instruments with my mouth. So I would hum, and I would make drum noises and things like that. And this was the early 80s, so hip-hop and rap was just becoming a thing, and beatboxing was really cool in the 80s. I don't think it's as cool now. But there were kids everywhere walking around going... (laughs) And... My brother did this all the time. I have a a brother who's three years older than me, and I'm going to throw him under the bus, but he turned out to be an all right guy. But my my older brother would do this, and I would think, that doesn't really sound that cool. But he told me that he was really good at beatboxing. And then when I would do it, he would say, that's stupid. That's not how you do that. And so... So I believed him. He told me that I didn't know how to beatbox, and I believed it so much so that I stopped doing it around anyone. I wouldn't let anybody hear me because I was insecure about it because my brother was older and cooler. Um, but I never stopped like humming and beatboxing. In fact, I still do when I'm by myself, and it drives Brandy crazy. And I, I always tell her, if I died, you'd miss this about me. And... That drives her crazy also. But so fast forward, I'm, I'm 18 or 19 years old and I'm in a van with a bunch of guys and I didn't even realize I was like 
making drum noises with my mouth, but I was. And somebody at the front of the van goes, was that you? And I immediately felt all this shame and all this embarrassment because it took me back to when my brother heard me do it. And he said, you're not doing that right. That sounds stupid. And I said, yeah, that was me. And they were like, I thought you were listening to headphones. That sounds just like drums. Can you do that again? So I started doing it again. And they're like, wait, wait, are you humming the bass line and doing the drums at the same time? And I'm like, yeah. And, and they, all the guys in the van start trying to do it and they can't do it. And then it becomes this thing where all my friends know like, oh, Mark can beatbox really well. And we'd hang out and people would be like, do this song, do this song, do this song. <laughs> so what I realized is I was good at beatboxing all along. And I'm not going to lie, until this very moment, I was not sure if I was going to do it for you or not, but um, Brandy's, Brandy, Brandy's home because Lucy's sick this morning, and I, I told her, like, I'm going to tell this story, and she's like, you're going to beatbox, right? I'm like, I don't know, and she's like, well, you won't have any credibility if you don't. So, uh, so the song that I first started beatboxing was Billie Jean by Michael Jackson, which now that I'm older, I can't believe my mom let me listen to that. But so here, here's just a couple bars of Billie Jean. Okay, so I can beatbox, right? I'm pretty sure that is one of the weirdest and possibly most irreverent things that has ever happened in a Presbyterian church. Um, so why am I telling you this? Here's why. The world is constantly telling us who we are. And the world is constantly telling us what we can do and what we can't do. My brother told me I wasn't doing it right, and so I believed him, and I lived out of that lie. It kept me hidden. I hid, granted it's not that useful of a gift, but I, I hid the gift that I had because I didn't know that I had it. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Today we're looking at a passage in which Paul is reminding young Christians, young followers, what's true about them. He's reminding them of the gifts that they've been given. And then he's reminding them because these things aren't immediately apparent to the world. So in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly or foolishness to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about things that are spiritually discerned. Okay? So we're going to read... Um, we're actually not going to read the whole passage all at one time, and here's why. By the way, you've got it on the back of your bulletin here. So our passage for this morning is Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. I encourage you to look it up in your Bible and follow along with me, or you can look on the back of your bulletin here. But um, I, I've got to be honest, this is probably the hardest sermon I've ever prepared for and it's not because I couldn't figure out things to say. It's because there's so much there, it's hard to figure out what I shouldn't say. Um, and I want to just openly acknowledge that Paul's letters can be hard to read. I was telling Joe earlier this week, if I wrote this and turned it into a teacher, like in, in English class, it would come back with red ink all over it because he uses run-on sentences and he comma splices things, and you kind of get the idea that he's inspired, and he's just excited. He's like, oh, this is good, this is good, this is good, and he just keeps going with it. 
but it's hard to, it's hard to like suss it out sometimes. So we're going to take it just a little bit at a time so that we can understand it. And uh, even Peter, who is a contemporary of Paul, in 2 Peter 3.16, Peter acknowledges that Paul's letters aren't easy to read. He said, there's some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And what's so significant is, first of all, that Peter's like, yeah, Paul's letters are kind of hard to understand. But he says the other scriptures. In other words, already Paul's still alive and the apostle Peter is holding Paul's letters up as scripture on par with Genesis and Isaiah and the other scriptures that they studied, which means that Paul's letters are God's revelation to us about himself, about Jesus Christ. And so we should study them. And so these sometimes aren't as easy to understand as other books of the Bible, but you can do it. You can. It's just, you don't read it like a comic book. You have to kind of chew on it a little bit. So last week, Peaks started our new sermon series entitled Breakout. So we talked during Advent about Jesus kind of writing himself into the story of humanity and breaking in. And now we're talking about the gospel breaking out into the world through the church. So Ephesians is a great place to start for that. So Pete gave his background on the city of Ephesus and a little bit about the, the um, context of the audience. And he covered the first 14 verses. And there are a lot of things in those first 14 verses. It's a poem of praise to God. And Paul praises God specifically for what he's done for those who have faith in Christ. He blessed us. He chose us. He adopted us. He redeemed us. He forgave us. He made Christ known to us. He promised us an inheritance. And he gave us his spirit as a guarantee of the inheritance. That's all just in the first 14 verses. And in that small chunk, we get huge concepts like the Trinity and the doctrine of election. And as Paul finishes this section of his letter, he switches from proclaiming what's true of all Christians. In verse 13, he switches from we to you. He's, he goes from talking about all Christians in general to the Ephesians specifically. And I want to tell you, when Paul says you, he's talking to each one of you. Because this is God's holy scripture. It's not just for a church in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. It's for Orangewood Church in 2019 this morning. So it's important to know what he says right before our passage starts today. Because today's passage starts with, for this reason. So we need to see what that's based on. So read me verses 13 and 14. It says, In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So remember, these Ephesians weren't Jews. They were Gentiles, and most of them had converted to Christianity probably from worshiping the pantheon, from worshiping multiple gods. And so there might have been some understanding that they were less than the Jews. They might have felt they were less than the Jews, or some of the Jewish Christians may have made them feel that way. But Paul's saying, the same way we, the Jews, heard Christ and received him, you did. The same way we received the Holy Spirit, you did. 
And this is significant, it's significant because one of the main themes of Ephesians is about God creating a new family that's not, it's not based on earthly heritage. Israel is no longer a bloodline. He is calling people from all nations, black, white, red, yellow, male, female. It does not matter. It is inclusive. And so it's significant here that Paul is confirming to them, you have received the same gospel and the same Holy Spirit that we have. So now we get to our passage, which starts for this reason. This is verses 15 and 16. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And I want to tell you on a personal note, I haven't been at Orangewood a super long time. I can pray this prayer about Orangewood Church and I can mean it. 2018 in so many ways, was a really horrific year for the life of this church. And it could have broken us. It could have split us. It could have caused dissension. But I have heard of your faith in the Lord. And I've heard of your love for the saints. Uh, Brandy and I placed membership back in November. And we stood up here with a lot of other people and families And as I was going through the Discovering Orangewood class, when people were talking about why they wanted to be a part of Orangewood, it wasn't um, the great preaching or the great music or the facilities or anything like that. It was people are genuine here. We feel like people really care. We feel like it's warm. We feel loved here. We feel like Jesus is proclaimed here. That is amazing, and I'm so thankful for that. And so I'm honored to be part of this body with you. So I commend you for that and say, keep it up. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here. He's thankful for their faith and love because it's the proof in the pudding that they really are Christians, just like he is. He gives thanks for them, and he prays for them. And the rest of this chapter is basically a prayer. And it's kind of interesting because he's sort of praying for them, and he's sort of saying... Here's the things that I pray for you. And you'll see what I mean. But basically the roadmap for this sermon is we're going to look at what Paul prays. And it's three things. And then we're going to look at why Paul prays those. And that's three things. And then hopefully we're going to make it practical and bring it home into this room today. Um, And... One of the things that we can learn from this passage is it's kind of a roadmap for how we can pray. There's more than one way to pray. There's the Lord's Prayer. There's other prayers in Scripture. But this is a good way to pray if you don't know how to pray for others. And he starts with thanksgiving. And I am thankful for Orangewood Church. I'm thankful for your faith in Christ. I'm thankful for your love for all the saints. That's a great way to start praying. And we tend to almost see prayer as like crisis management, if you know what I mean. So like if you heard Mark really needs your prayer, you would assume that I'm sick or I'm going through a hard time or maybe I'm failing morally or something like that. But the Apostle Paul has heard that the Ephesians are doing really well, that they have faith in Christ and that they're loving others. And so he keeps praying. And I think that's great. Because really, when is it a good idea to stop praying for a church, you know? Um, If someone says to you, 
hey, just want you to know I'm always praying for you. You wouldn't say, I'm actually doing pretty good, so you don't need to pray for me anymore. No, you'd be like, that's awesome. I feel so encouraged that you're praying for me. See, in in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he prays for them because they're messing up in all kinds of goofy ways and really getting the gospel wrong. So he prays for them and tries to remind them of who they are in Christ. But then the Ephesian church, they're getting it right. They're loving people. They have faith in Jesus. And so he prays for them and he reminds them of who they are in Christ. It's a great way to pray. So what does he pray? In verse 17, Paul gets into what he actually prays for the Ephesians. So I'm going to read 17 and the first little clause of 18. Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So in short, here's what he prays. He prays three things. He prays for wisdom, for knowledge, and for enlightenment. He prays for wisdom, for knowledge, and enlightenment. And it's interesting because he doesn't pray for circumstances. Instead, he prays that whatever circumstances these Christ followers find themselves in, that they would have wisdom to navigate the circumstance. And I don't think that means Paul never prayed for circumstances or that it's wrong to. But you got to remember, Paul's an old man at this point. He's almost been killed for the gospel multiple times, and he's writing this letter to them from prison. And so he's gripped by something greater than them having nice circumstances. Do you know what I mean? This is what, desi- what Paul desires for people, knowledge, wisdom, and enlightenment. And you'll find that all the things that Paul prays for are familiar words that the world uses But he's not using them based on the way the world uses them. He's using them according to the kingdom of God. So he prays that God would give them the spirit of wisdom. And the spirit of God is God's guiding presence in the hearts of all who believe in Christ. One of the wonderful things about the gospel is that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the spirit of the living God, the very God who created all things out of nothing, dwells in our hearts. That's good news. So Paul isn't asking that they would receive the Spirit because they're already Christians. They already have it. It said that just a few verses earlier. But he's praying for the Spirit to bring wisdom. And the Spirit brings a different sort of wisdom than what the world values. I encourage you to spend time in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians as often as you can. It's probably my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. And in verse, starting in verse 18, Paul really starts differentiating between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. And in 1 Corinthians 1, 21, he says this, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly or foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. So Paul's almost being a little bit sarcastic here. He's saying, Since in the world's wisdom, they didn't know God, God's pleased through the foolishness or through the folly of what's preached. This was incredibly encouraging to me when I was 21 years old, minoring in religion at a state college. And I was in these classes where I was the only Christian and I was being ridiculed because my beliefs were foolish. I found comfort in this because it's God's plan. 
because it's contrary to the wisdom of the world. God is pleased through the folly of what is preached. And he's saying you can't know him through worldly wisdom, through just thinking it through. It has to be revealed. So that's what Paul's next prayer is. The second thing he prays is that God would give the Ephesians revelation in the knowledge of him. And when we think knowledge, we think learning, we think data, we think facts, we think memorizing things. But Paul isn't talking about learning some facts. He's talking about having an experience of God. I love the Beatles, and I've read every single Wikipedia page you can finally find, you can, you can find on them. But I don't know Ringo. I don't know Paul. Knowing about them is not the same as knowing them. Paul's talking about an intimate understanding. And listen to what God says through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9. He says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. If you're here and you are known as a wise person or if you have wealth or if you have power, my encouragement is don't find your identity and your worth in that. Don't boast in that. Boast in the fact that you know the Lord, which is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's revelation. And if you're here this morning and you cannot relate to someone who says, I'm rich, I'm mighty, I'm wealthy. I'm wise. Look at all that I have. It's okay because you have something of far greater value if you know the Lord. We can't know God as the Lord who practices steadfast love unless we actually know him. Lots of people know facts about God, but they don't know him as Lord. The third thing that Paul prays is that the Ephesians will have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. And this, this is the part that gets me the most excited, and yet it's the most difficult to talk about in some ways. In our culture, think about what it means if someone says that they've been enlightened. It usually means they have some, by their standard, greater understanding of the world, and so they leave behind Morality. They leave behind the religion of their childhood. They are unfettered. That's usually what it means. In history books, if you, if you read about Europe in the 18th century, that period of time is called the Age of Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. And what happened in the Age of the Enlightenment is the politicians and the artists and the painters and the writers and the musicians and the scientists and the thinkers and the influential people were emphasizing reason and empiricism over against church. They saw that as superstitious. So what that means, and like I want to be even-handed here, everything that came out of the Age of Enlightenment wasn't bad, it, but it has a profound effect on us still today. Because what they saw they valued reason. They valued their minds more than anything. And they said, if we can't observe it with our senses, if we can't test it and retest it and retest it, then it isn't true. And this butts up against the gospel because how do you observe and retest God creating everything out of nothing? How do you 
observe and retest a virgin birth? How do you observe and retest resurrection from the dead? See, reason would say those, those things don't happen. We've never seen that before, and so it can't be true. But if our hearts are enlightened, if we know Jesus is Lord, we say this has never happened any other time in history, so it has to be true. There has to be something to this. Paul prays that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. And our hearts can't be enlightened through reason because the world and its reason will only find the gospel foolish. Can we just acknowledge that we are here this morning singing songs to, praying to, and talking about a spirit that none of us has ever seen? On the surface, that seems weird and foolish, superstitious at best. But we know God through our hearts. We see God through our hearts. It's not our senses. I mean, we have experience of his creation. We can see the glory of God in a sunrise and a baby laughing. But we know him through our hearts. We see him through the eyes of our hearts but we can't offer any tangible proof. I think Paul's prayer for the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened is the crux of this whole thing because it's easier to see with our natural eyes, with our natural senses than it is to see with the eyes of our hearts. And so sometimes it looks like and it feels like God isn't real or at least if he is, he's not near. We need the eyes of our hearts to be opened to the fact that thanks to Jesus Christ, God is always with us, that God is always near. God is always near. And I want, this is maybe weird, but I want to actually take a moment and I want us to pray that God would enlighten the eyes of our hearts. I want you to actually pray this. I'm just going to be silent for a moment and I want you to pray it for yourself and I want you to pray it for your brothers and sisters here that we wouldn't just see with our senses but that God would enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Lord Jesus, let us see the unseen, enlighten the eyes of our hearts. I'm going to keep talking, but I want you to stay in a spirit of prayer. Even if you need to tune me out, I want you to pray for yourself, for our church, for Orangewood, that we would be a church who sees God with the eyes of our hearts. In verses 18 and 19, Paul is going to tell why he prays those things. So he prays for knowledge and wisdom and enlightenment. And in 18 and 19, he tells us why. He prays these songs so 
that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. So again, Paul's being a little bit wordy here, but we're going to break it down. The main phrase that I want you to pay attention to is that you may know. Paul prays for wisdom and knowledge and enlightenment that you may know. And there are three things that he wants us to know. He wants us to know the hope, the inheritance, and the power. The hope, the inheritance, and the power. So let's talk about the hope. Paul prays that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And this hope isn't a wish like, I hope this sermon's almost over, or I hope we go somewhere good for lunch. Biblical hope is praying for certainty in a fact. Hebrews 11.1 says that it is the conviction of things not seen. And the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only sure hope. It's the only sure hope. Jesus is coming back and he's going to make all things new. That is the great Christian hope. And Paul says that God has called us to this hope. So what he's praying for is that we who are called by God to be followers of Christ would remember what our ultimate hope is. I hope that Lucy will get to go to college someday. We hope that our 401k will last. We hope we'll get to go on a dream vacation. We hope that we'll elect people who will sort our country out. But that's not our ultimate hope. Our hope is that Jesus Christ is coming back And he's going to make everything that's wrong right. And there's no chance that he will fail. It's the only hope that's certain. You know this. You've heard this. I've said this. You've said things like this. But what if our hearts got gripped by that hope? I was trying to think what this is like. Some analogy. and What what it made me think of is like 11 or 12 years ago, I was living in Nashville, and I worked in the stock room at Restoration Hardware in this really ritzy mall in a really wealthy part of town, and I couldn't even afford anything at Restoration Hardware. Like, I didn't give a rip about what I was doing. It was just a job. And wealthy, entitled, rude people came in all the time, and they'd be like, I don't know which toothbrush holder to get? Should I get the antique bronze or the brushed silver? I'm like, I don't care. I can keep my toothbrush in a cup. I don't, it doesn't matter to me. I don't know why you're paying $60 for a toothbrush holder. So no offense. If you can do that, more power to you. Um, but then I started dating Brandy and I immediately fell in love with her. And I found that I had a little bounce in my step and I had a little more patience for all those rude people for all those entitled people. And I found that I was offering a little more kindness to the people that I worked with. And no matter how stupid my day was or how rude people were to me or how menial the task, it didn't matter that much because I knew that at the end of the night, I was going to drive over to Brandy's house and it didn't even matter what we did because I was just going to be with her. Have you felt that before? Do you remember what that's like? What if we had that kind of hope in the promises of the gospel, the certainty that there's going to be a day that Jesus is coming back and he's going to redeem his bride, that he's been preparing a place for us for 2,000 years, so it's going to be sweet. (laughs) 
Can you imagine what our lives would look like if everything we did was shaped by that hope? And that's what I want for me, for you, for this church. I am almost out of time and about halfway through my sermon, so I'm going to try to, try to uh, <clears throat> skip on through this thing. Second reason Paul prays, second why, is so that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Here's the thing. This is a radically different way of thinking about inheritance, because when we think about inheritance, we think someone dies and their assets are divided up between their loved ones and the people in their will. And the more people on the will, the fewer assets the people get, right? But the kingdom of God is so different, because it's not a zero-sum game. All who are Christians get all of the inheritance. We get it all. It's not a zero-sum game. And another crazy thing, for our inheritance, nobody dies. Jesus died for us so that we can get the inheritance, but he's risen from the grave. And the best thing about our inheritance is we get to be with him. It doesn't even matter all the other stuff, but it turns out the entire cosmos is going to be renewed and redeemed. And it's ours. That's our inheritance. The renewed world with Christ at the center of it. Christ is king. The rules of the kingdom are far different. The rules of the kingdom of God. Our world is based on fear and scarcity. There's only so much money, so many resources, so much land, so you've got to get it. And if you don't, you might not have the life that you want. But what Paul's praying for the Ephesians is that their eyes will be opened, that we have so much more than these things in Christ. In Christ, there is no scarcity, so we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be driven by pride or fear. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is talking about our tendency to worry about, what am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And he's, he's not saying we just sit in caves and ponder scripture and hope that ravens bring us burgers or something like that. We still have to go work and we still have to go be diligent, but our diligence isn't driven by fear and scarcity. In the kingdom of God, we use our gifts and our talents and our resources, not for ourselves, but to be a gift. But that's contrary to how this world works. And so if you think, if you found this stack of money, you wouldn't think, uh, I'm going to tell everybody about it so they can come get some. You'd think, can I grab this thing without anybody seeing? But the kingdom of God is, I have found riches and I want you all to come because if you come, it doesn't take away from what I have. That's why in the prodigal son, the father says to the older brother, he says, you're always with me and all I have is yours. You don't have to work for this. You don't have to worry about your brother getting some of it. Everything I have is yours. That's the way the kingdom of God works. That's the riches of our inheritance. And here's the, here's the main thing about all this stuff. Paul's prayer isn't that you would receive the inheritance because you already have it. You don't have to understand it. You don't even have to know that you have it. But he's praying that you realize what you have because if you realize you have this, you're not going to care about all this other stuff. It makes everything else seem stupid, honestly. Like, why are, why are we worried about, you know, like, if we're going to get a reservation at this restaurant when we're going to heaven, you know? Like, 
but we don't think about that. Um, okay, I'm gonna, try to, I'm gonna try to power through this thing. Here we go, are you still with me? Do I need to do jumping jacks or something? Are we still good? Okay, okay, so the last thing. He wants us to know that our hope, what our hope is and what our inheritance is. The third thing, the third why of why he's praying is he wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. He wants us to know God's power. And the Greek word for power is dunamis. You don't have to remember that. George will remember that. He's probably tell me I'm not saying it right. Um, the Greek word for power is dunamis, and it means power and ability and strength, but it's not just physical strength. It's like, it's like an inherent strength. And in scripture, and even in other like Greek writings, it usually is used for like miracles and power and almost supernatural things like that. So in light of this, I'm going to ask a weird question. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Alfred Nobel. Okay, a few of you. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Nobel Peace Prize. So almost everyone. So the Nobel Prizes are the most prestigious prizes that you can win, basically, on Earth. There's five prizes. Uh, it's like physics, chemistry, writing, peace, something else. Um, I'm never going to win one, so I'm not that concerned about it. But here's, here's how they came to be. Alfred Nobel was a Swedish inventor who willed his fortune to create these prizes. He was a smart man, a brilliant man, knowledgeable. He was a chemist, an inventor, a businessman. He was very wise. He was shrewd. He, he started multiple businesses. Some of them are still flourishing today. But the reason he started the Nobel Prize... He, well, he died in 1896, okay? The guy had 355 patents under his belt. When he died, he left over $2 million in 1896. Like, that's a ton of money now. Think about in 1896, a fortune that's worth over $2 million. The reason he wanted to start these prizes is because his brother died, and this newspaper erroneously thought that he died and he read the obituary. And this is what it said. In the obituary, it called him the merchant of death. And it said, Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. See, Alfred Nobel was most famous because he invented dynamite. He named it dynamite because the Greek word for power is dunamis. Dunamis, dynamite. He was a powerful man. And when we think of power, it usually has a dark connotation, like he's a powerful man, so don't cross him. When we think about power, we think about the power to destroy, the power to kill, the power to take away. But the dunamis, the power of God, is the power that we were singing about earlier. He called my name, and I ran out of that grave. It's not the power to destroy. Anybody can blow stuff up. Nobel named dynamite dynamite because it had the power to blow buildings up. Anybody can do that. God creates life. God creates out of nothing. God brings the death 
the dead to life. That's the power of God. And so when Paul says he wants us to know this power, look at verses 20 and 21. It says, it's the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God's immeasurable power toward us who believe is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. It's the same power that made him ascend from earth into heaven. And it is at work in our hearts. It is available to us. But the eyes of our heart have to be opened to see this power, to realize what this power is, because it doesn't look like earthly power. In the kingdom of God, if you want to be powerful, you serve people. You wash their feet. You lay down your life for other people. But my prayer for each of us this morning is that we would not just believe in this power, but we know that this power is at work in us and through us. Maybe you've been married for 20 years and you've stayed together for the kids, but the truth is you don't really like each other. And if you're really honest, you don't even want to like each other. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in your heart and can resurrect your marriage. Maybe you carry a dark secret this morning. It's almost like you live a double life. It's like you have an addiction. Maybe the last time you looked at porn, you said that's the last time. But you said that the time before and the time before and the time before and you feel like you're enslaved to this thing. Can you believe that the power of Christ that sets us free, that raises the dead, is at work in your heart to do this thing? it is. But I want to tell you, you can't do it alone. See, this letter isn't written to an individual. It's written to a people. It's written to a church. And as Paul draws this part of the letter to a close, he's putting his focus on the church. Read verses 22 and 23. I promise we're almost done here. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The end game is the church. If we, as the church, are the body of Christ, I mean, just this last phrase, the fullness of, of him who fills all in all, it's saying Christ was given to the church, and the church is his body, and Jesus fills the world. And what does he fill the world with? The church. We are the fullness. He is what he is filling the world with. We are God's plan. This, Orangewood, is God's plan. And if we are the body of Christ, if we are the fullness of Christ, will church not be the number one target of the enemy? Absolutely. And so the plan of the enemy is to isolate us and to lie to us and to make our hearts blind to the hope and the inheritance and the power that we have in Christ. And so as we end, I just want to ask, what would it be like if the eyes of our heart were enlightened this morning? Like even as we sing the closing song, what would it be like if the eyes of our hearts were enlightened as we walk out into the foyer 
What if we talked about something other than the game or where we're going to eat? What if we actually entered into each other's lives? Because the lie, the lie that the world tells us that the enemy would love us to believe is you can't be vulnerable because if you do, people aren't going to like you or they're going to gossip about you. They're not going to pray for you. But can we commit right now to share our burdens with one another and pray for one another? Because we were never meant to do this alone. The plan has always been the church. The plan has always been the church. The power that put Jesus Christ far above all rule and all authority is the power at work in each of our hearts. And when we come together, we are the fullness of Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for such a rich, rich text. Thank you that we can study just a few verses in Ephesians and we'll never glean all there is there. Thank you that your riches truly are endless, measureless. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts, Lord. Let us never stop seeking that. Let us never stop praying that for ourselves and for one another. Let our hearts and our lives and our actions and the way we use our resources and our words be gripped by the glorious inheritance that we have thanks to Christ Jesus. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. Amen.